0: From Greenbiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Greenbiz Headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Life After Keystone XL, a buyer's guide to corporate clean energy purchases, and an innovative new study plans to crack the code on green marketing messages to consumers is only a test, this week on 350. It's Friday, November 13th, 2015. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here as always with Associate Editor, Lauren Hepler. Lauren, happy Friday the 13th.
1: Ah, so spooky.
0: How's it going? I'm going. I don't believe in being superstition superstitious. I think it brings bad luck. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> enough, sorry, dad enough. joke. Um, yeah, another crazy week here at uh, Greenbiz headquarters, right?
1: Yeah, I had a couple dozen folks with French accents walking by my desk yesterday. Uh, a, packed not house.
0: A, not a croissant in sight either. I know.
1: Isn't... Bummer. What was that?
0: I don't know. We had, we had uh, turkey sandwiches, I think. <laughs> yeah, we had, uh, we, we'll had we talk about that in a few minutes. We had a uh, visitor delegation from uh, uh, Loire de la Paix, uh, the region of France, coming to hear about clean tech and sustainable business. And uh, conferences, events, just planning.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I know we'll be going to Phoenix in February sooner than it seems now, and even before that, heading
0: to Paris for COP. Yeah, and we're talking also about our Verge Hawaii uh, Asia Pacific Clean Energy Summit next June in Waikiki, and we're even talking about, even though it just seems like you know we barely uh, have recovered from the hangovers, that we're talking about Verge Twenty Sixteen, which is uh, next September. So. You know every it, it we don't get very far past an event before we're talking about the next three um, but it's what keeps it exciting here right
1: definitely definitely
0: yeah but uh, let's move on from that to uh, talk about the green biz week in review mm-hmm.
1: So it's been a busy week. Obviously, last Friday, President Obama's rejection of the Keystone XL oil pipeline was big news. As I'm sure you're all well aware, that was the proposal to run a pipeline some 1,800 miles from Alberta's tar sands all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, transporting hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil per day. Uh, as the dust started to settle on that, we sort of keyed into one particular line of reasoning that stuck out in Obama's rejection, um, which is this idea that we are possibly going to have to keep large amounts of carbon asset reserves buried in the ground. Um, So to quote the president, he said, ultimately, if we're going to prevent large parts of this earth from becoming not only inhospitable, but uninhabitable in our lifetimes, we're going to have to keep some fossil fuels in the ground rather than burn them and release more dangerous pollution into the sky.
0: And so what he's talking about there is this kind of geeky term we've been writing about it for, well, maybe much of the past year called stranded assets. Now that's a geeky financial term, it describes something that has become obsolete or non-performing well ahead of its useful life. In other words, it was something that had value, but for whatever reason, being outmoded or being illegal or some other reason, no longer has, has value and, and needs to be recorded on a company's balance sheet as a loss of profit. So in this case, what's stranded is what's now being called unburnable carbon, which is about 80% of the world's reserves, oil reserves. And I guess we're talking about coal coal as well in there that that we basically can't burn if we want to keep the climate within uh, climate uh, temperature rise within planetary limits.
1: Right, right. And when you look at it on aggregate, all of those potential stranded assets get quickly into the trillions of dollars. So the global economic ripples here are, are pretty jarring when you think about how this could play out. But like you alluded to, a lot of this hinges on whether there's a regulatory shift, like carbon taxes would be the one big looming thing, um, or sort of other investment shifts that make some of this more tangible. Right.
0: And by the way, it's the, stranded assets isn't just limited to coal or oil because you know water intensive crops uh, you know we've here in the California we've had the drought we've talked about almond trees and other nut and fruit trees that require a lot of water and potentially if droughts get bad enough those could become stranded assets which is to say something that used to have value because they produced fruits and and, and nuts and but no longer because you they can't water them they can't afford or they don't no longer can have access to the water that's another form of stranded assets so this is a term that Could have more resonance as we uh, get into a a world with a changing climate.
1: Right, and I think uh, one area to watch here will be how Wall Street responds to all of this, which brings us to another story we focused on this week. Our senior writer, Barbara Grady, took a pretty in-depth look at how big banks are jumping into climate action. Goldman Sachs was the latest financial services firm to announce a $150 billion 10-year clean energy financing goal. Joel, I know you've looked at what Citibank and some others are doing in this space. Uh,
0: Yeah, what I call the big bank theory. Um, yeah, the, I mean, the banks have been uh, all over this. First of all, uh, Citi and Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo and Bank of America have all made significant, when I mean $100 billion plus, commitments to uh, clean energy and other low-carbon uh, uh, technologies to invest in them or to provide loans to uh, borrowers for those uh, money-making for them. No question about it. This is not philanthropy, but it, it is saying we want to dedicate uh, more of this. But you know, city uh, came out with a, a um, study uh, in I think in August that ta- looked at the cost of inaction. I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say that the number was something like 150 trillion dollars over 25 years. Uh, of inaction uh, in, you know, if we don't make some kind of change, as we're talking about later this month in, in Paris, and in COP, or just if the, uh, uh, the energy technologies and energy ecosystems uh, at the government or, or state and local subnational levels uh, don't come around to, you know, some kind of clean energy transformation.
1: Yeah, but as you alluded to, one element I'm really intrigued by in this whole Wall Streetization of clean energy is the financial products they're spinning out. And I'm not going to pretend like I understand the nuances of all of them, but you're starting to hear things like securitization of solar bonds and how they're sort of applying these sometimes controversial financial mechanisms to renewable energy now.
0: Yeah, we, t- we talked about green Bonds as one of the trends for 2015 in our 2015 State of Green Business report, and we're we're beginning to see a whole new uh, range of of financial instruments. And and you know, sometimes there's unexpected hiccups along the way. One example of that is uh, pace financing, uh, which is uh, it's uh, it's basically a, a loan to a homeowner or I think any building owner. Uh, that, uh, to to put in solar or energy efficiency measures where the money is repaid through property taxes over 20 years. And so uh, the loan is basically made to the building or the building owner, whoever that is. So if you sell the building, it it carries over to the next buyer. Um, And uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, you know, got involved and said, well, wait a minute, that puts uh, the That lender in a different position relative to the mortgage lender, and all of a sudden they made those illegal for a while. Then they had to work; they worked some of that out, but it's still in play. Their pace loans are only available in some places. But when you get into the financing, whether it's at the home level or the country level or some massive, you know, multi-billion or trillion-dollar level, it gets you know people don't like to have their money messed with, and Mm -hmm. so this becomes very touchy. So we're going to be seeing a lot more. Talk about what's the role of the financial industry and financial uh, instruments like securitization of of loans um, in furthering the low carbon technologies.
1: A lot of this is obviously also looking at the trade-offs between reaping short-term profits and keying into longer-term financial risks that you see with a lot of these climate issues, Um, which brings me to another great article that our reporter Keith Larson filed this week. The title was, Why Your Energy Demand Forecasts Are Wrong. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah,
0: really.
1: Yeah, uh, but he really focused on the idea this is a report out of Carbon Tracker that um, is looking at how companies of all stripes may be sort of missing the potential for what they term demand destruction for fossil fuels. Like right now, it seems like um, coal and natural gas and fossil fuels are going to be a huge part of the way we're powering operations for years to come. But they're looking more at this idea of exponential progress in renewable energy and sort of how you account for innovation that hasn't yet fully been realized.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is something that... You know, it's hard to translate this yet at the firm level, at the level of what do I do as a corporate energy buyer. We'll talk about that in a minute. But um, these are questions that bring uh, some level of uncertainty to, to some of these markets, and, and they need to be uh, worked out on an accounting level and on a market uh, uh, assurance level in order for us to really move things forward, uh, you know, in order to really scale. Uh, Even if, you know, everything goes swimmingly in Paris at COP, you know, and and all of a sudden countries start committing to massive uh, growth of renewables in their country, sometimes it's not so easy just from a financing point of view.
1: Yeah. Keith also does bring in a couple of specific market segments to watch, like energy storage obviously could really change the game quickly if like at the company level, like you're saying, we're able to start looking at more reliable uh, clean energy systems. So definitely a lot to watch there.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's this whole thing around, uh, you, you know, COP and and climate policy and national and global commitments on climate. Translating that to what do I do in my company is, uh, is is not so easy. We did a webcast this week, as you know, and I don't really want to get into it. I'm a little feeling a little copped out right now and, because there's been so much talk about COP21. But but. We had uh, Citibank and the World Business Council on Sustainable Development and, and Kelly from Ceres talking about what's going to be going on in Paris. And I you know, really wanted to drive, well, what does this mean for me and my company? And those are still difficult questions to answer.
1: They're difficult to answer, but that's also what we're going to talk about next. Let's go in depth now on a topic that you're hearing more and more about, which is how corporations are investing in clean energy. I spent a good chunk of this week with my colleague, Soraya Milconian, our technical director. We broke her out of her lair of editing, and she is with us now. Thank you, Soraya.
3: Hi, thank you, Lauren.
1: All right, so as you know, we spent a good chunk of time looking at the different ways companies can go about investing in clean energy, which does sort of get into a little bit of like an alphabet soup scenario where you've got PPAs, RECs, all these different things, Um, but we broke it down into 12 specific ways companies can go about this investment in renewable energy um, in sort of three main buckets.
3: Yeah. So there are three main buckets. The first is certification of uh, buying energy. Um, So we're talking about RECs, also called green tags. And these are all just proofs that you have used green energy. Um, Then you also have the actual procurement of energy. So we're talking about PPAs, virtual PPAs on-site renewables if you're using a PPA for that or if you're leasing or um, if you're doing it completely if you're owning it doing it all on your own Um, and then the third bucket is equity investments people are seeing an opportunity in the long-term stability of uh, buying energy so you have people or groups such as banks I don't care about the ex. I don't care about using the energy but they see it as a big opportunity Um, so they're buying this energy at a cheap price or what they consider to be a cheap price now and then they expect to turn around and sell it later Um, so you have this kind of um, hedge there and so in this area you have all these what I consider to be complicated things like yield codes securitization you have um, green bonds Um, So yeah, it gets to be a pretty complicated market, and we try to, you know, break it down in glossary terms in our piece.
1: Right, right. And one sort of element that was instrumental in us being able to do that was talking to the people who actually write the language in these deals. Um, A great source for us was Peter Mostow, who's an energy-focused attorney with the law firm Wilson, Cincini, Goodrich, and Rosati. I talked to Peter about sort of the trend towards renewable energy investment among big companies like Apple, Google, Walmart. Um, in particular, this area of PPAs, which you just right. mentioned, um, which stands for power purchase agreements. Um, and you've got not only physical PPAs, where you're just buying energy from an off site clean energy farm but virtual ppas which get a little more confusing so we asked peter to sort of give us the lay of the land in layman's terms and explain to us how these deals that involve hundreds of millions of dollars actually work
4: the companies that are entering into these ppas either regular ppas or virtual ppas um you know walmart or google or whatever the heck right they're doing it because they want to be able to say they made the underlying wind or solar project happen financially, their their contract was the thing that allowed the whole project to get built, right? That that's this concept of additionality that is important to the sustainability managers at, at big companies. You can't provide additionality if with a one year contract. <laughs> Because uh, the financing for these, you know, these wind or solar projects are, you know, hundred or multi-hundred million dollar infrastructure, and they're built with big loans, right? Big investments or big loans that are structured very tightly um, around guaranteed revenue from a long-term contract. So the corporate buyer, Google, Walmart, et cetera, they're providing that structured and guaranteed revenue for a long period of time that allows a bank to say, okay, I'll loan you the 200 million bucks to build this thing.
1: Do you mind elaborating on sort of the differences between the long-term PPAs um, and and virtual or synthetic PPAs?
4: A regular PPA, they never say it, but it's, it's sometimes called a physical delivery PPA, right? where electricity is actually being generated at point A, Moved across the wires and delivered at point B. So that's that's the regular model for a PPA, right? I'm buying power, so it gets generated somewhere and then it gets delivered to me somewhere. In reality, the electrons, of course, that are generated at a solar plant never actually go to the customer. It's the grid is a big, giant balancing, you know, you know, the accounting (laughs) system where it's all, the generation and the use of power is always kept in exact balance, but the specific electrons aren't really going from one place to the other. But that's the regular model of a PPA is that there's got to be a path for transmission and all that kind of stuff. A virtual PPA is, doesn't have that at all. So it's really a financial trade that is based around the price of power. There's a fixed price that is agreed between the buyer and the seller like a wind project and google and then there's a floating price which is the actual market price on any given day or at any given moment right so these kind of swaps are actually you know you could do a swap on you know the price of corn or pork bellies or whatever too in the power case you do it around the price of power in the market Uh, where the generator, where the wind project or the solar project is located, the buyer says, okay, to the seller, okay, here's the deal. I will promise you you're always going to get $30 per megawatt hour. So on a given day, if the market price is less than $30 a megawatt hour, say it's 25 $25 a megawatt hour today, I am the buyer, I will give you $5 cash. So, the, what the wind project can do is they'll sell power into the market at that day at the market price, which is $25, and then they'll get a supplemental $5 from the customer, right, the corporate buyer. If the market happens to be $35, the whole thing reverses, and the wind project pays the corporate customer $5. If you can imagine what's going on, right, like with, they're basically balancing around $30. And so that, from a financing and an additionality standpoint, um, the corporate customer has taken the risk of market volatility away off the project's balance sheet, right? They don't have to worry about market volatility anymore. All They know they're just going to always get 30. And that allows... The project to get financed by a bank because banks are not in business to like take market risk. So you can see how it's valuable to the wind project. It allows them to get financed. Why is it valuable to the to the corporate buyer at all? Because they're actually they'll be buying power in the market, usually in a similar market like on that same grid. So when the price is really um, really high and there power is expensive for them, say it goes up to 40, right? That means that the wind project will be sending them $10 cash for every megawatt hour they generate. And that $10 helps the corporate customer offset the utility bill that they're paying at their data center or their factory or whatever, because that price is also higher. When the market price goes up, it usually goes up everywhere in that region, right? So it's it's a hedge for them too. Like all of a sudden they're as a customer buying power, they're not exposed to market swings anymore either, and, and they're not worrying about whether their utility rate is going to go up year after year after year.
3: Oh, that's really helpful the way he explains virtual PPAs, but he also, Peter also mentions green tags and recs, um, which is basically proof that renewable energy has been bought. Um, so it's this paper trail. And the thing about REX is they they can be traded, and so it gets a little bit complicated. Where um, one entity buys the energy but doesn't actually use the energy, and they get um, the certification for it. A lot of companies and utilities are probably familiar with REX um, through either compliance issues or voluntary actions. Um, so we talked to Jennifer Martin at the Center for resource solutions. And this is a nonprofit that runs the Green E program to determine what actually counts as a REC in this evolving market.
1: Yeah. So this whole concept of additionality then also starts to come into play here, where you've got companies sort of starting to apply more scrutiny to RECs and evaluate whether buying these green tags and certificates actually add clean energy capacity Um, And Jennifer really broke it down and explained that this whole debate has a lot to do with REC pricing, which varies based on something called a Renewable Portfolio Standard. Just one more acronym for you. That's an RPS. Um, which does have a huge impact on the supply and demand of REX and ultimately can result in price variations from less than a dollar per megawatt hour for clean energy to several hundred dollars a pop. So to make sense of some of these complex issues, we talked to Jennifer about how the market for REX has evolved and why you see so much variation and how much they cost.
5: So, you're right on the money there about rec prices. They're hugely variable um, by region. And so some regions of the country have a huge supply of renewable energy. A lot of recs are being generated, and maybe there's no RPS or the RPS has been fully met so, so all those recs are sort of free to be sold out to the you know other buyers. Um, you know, on the converse side, you've got states like pretty much the whole New England market where the RPSs are pretty tight. And rec prices are high um, because there's so many people who have to buy recs that are generated in that region in order to meet the RPS. The supply is short, which drives up the price. Um, There, you know, if you look at, you know, so anytime you look at recs, you have to kind of say, well, you know, what region are you talking about? Are you talking about um, the region with the very lowest prices? How does buying a rec from there drive new development? I'd say, you know, in the short term, you know, the best, you know, claim you can make is that you are using renewable energy, but your purchase of a wreck from a place with a lot of oversupply isn't necessarily causing a new facility to be built that day. Um, you know, the market overall, you know, with thousands of companies buying renewable energy um, altogether, provides a signal to the market. That there's a demand for more renewables, and there are plenty of projects that get bit built um, where the developer knows that they're going to be able to get a certain amount of revenue from selling their racks. You know, less revenue than what they're going to get for selling their electricity, but it's still part of their calculus and doing, um, figuring out if they're going to do the project or not. And so it's all, you know, it's kind of like telling the story about an individual action versus telling the story about a, how a whole market works.
3: So yeah, this landscape is vast a bit confusing, but I think there's a lot of opportunity.
1: Yeah, both financial opportunity and opportunity for sustainability marketing and sort of proving how, how green your company really is and how low carbon your company is. Um, a lot of this is very quantitative as well. Um, so with all that said, if you're interested in learning more about this, be sure to check out greenbiz.com 350, where we have fleshed some of this out in our new renewable energy buying guide. Thank you so much, Soraya, for being with us.
3: Thank you, Lauren.
0: So I'm pleased to welcome to GreenBiz Studio Christian Forton, uh, who is the founder and CEO of Real Change, a company in Silicon Valley that has, for 20 years now has been bringing uh, companies and other professionals to the Bay Area to show them technology at its best and innovation and uh, he, right now in the other room uh, Christian has brought 20-25 uh, people to GreenBiz. Biz uh, so welcome Christian
6: thank you pleasure to be here Joel
0: yeah why what brings you who are these people and, and uh, what brings them to GreenBiz?
6: okay so we are bringing 25 25- innovators from the Pays de la Loire region. This is a region of the west of France, which is among the European regions, one of the most innovative in terms of tech and in terms of sustainability. So we are, uh, my company has been bridging Silicon Valley with innovation hotspots in the world, and in particular with innovative companies. For the past 20 years, we are connecting our clients to the best of the ecosystem. What we call the best of the ecosystem of Silicon Valley is the combination of technology innovation, sustainability innovation, and a culture of transformation and making a better world. So in this group, you have 20 percent of elected officials, people who would be equivalent to a lieutenant governor of a state in the U.S. You have web entrepreneurs, you have sustainability and clean tech entrepreneurs. and they are here on a, on a five five-day real change learning journey that is all about empowering them to take the next leap in terms of their ability to bring innovation forward.
0: So, um, who else are you visiting on this tour besides GreenBiz?
6: Yeah, so the, we started yesterday. We took this group to Bespoke, the um, digital uh, incubator of Westfield Mall. This morning, we went, we met with Autodesk with uh, director of sustainability. We are at GreenBiz with you today. We will be at Oakland Impact Hub this afternoon to look to look about radical inclusi- inclusion of entrepreneurs of all walks of life in the innovation process. We'll do a creativity session as well there. Tomorrow we'll be in Silicon Valley itself around Palo Alto meeting with Upwork, human capital on demand, how companies can connect with freelancers around the world. And we will be also meeting with Scoopit, an online curation platform before uh, ending on Friday with uh, a a startup that puts everything together in our mind, which is Volta charging stations, bringing uh, free uh, charging stations to uh, so molds. And our final visit would be the Lancy Street Foundation, a company that we've actually brought our clients and friends for, uh, to for 20 years that is all about human transformation, how to help people who have touched bottom rebuild their lives and create a new life.
0: So the group that's here from Petit Loire, sorry, pardon my French, um, that region uh, is sort of the Green Valley, that one of the innovation hubs around sustainability uh, in certainly in France, but I think even in Europe. Talk a little, little bit about what's going on there.
6: Yes, it's uh, its capital. Uh, Nantes was uh, named European Green Capital in 2013. It's one of the major European distinctions in terms of true com- commitment to climate goals, to sustainability uh, initiatives. So sustainability is part of the DNA of its region. What's interesting is that it's also one of the most innovative IT innovation hub in France as well. It uh, has a, an, a conference called Web Today, which attracts a large uh, audience every year. And it's also an amazing um, hub for makers. Uh, one of the most famous initiatives of uh, this region is called La Compagnie La Machine, which builds amazing three story high. Uh, living machines. Uh, there's an elephant that is th- that roams the streets of Nantes. That is an animated machine that's operated by by people. There's a dragon that was actually sold to a, a wealthy Chinese patron, which was flown flown to China uh, as as a symbol of 50 years of French uh, Chinese uh, di- uh, friendship. And this is makers at its best in some way. People, these people have been building ships and building machines and have, with a vision of re-enchanting cities and urban environments and making adults wonder as children would do as they look at these, at these uh, living machines.
0: So when you bring these entrepreneurs and business people to Silicon Valley and, and, and places like GreenBiz. Is it a one-way transfer of information, or are they also giving I- ideas to, to companies here in the Bay Area?
6: Yeah, what's been interesting, for, what's been fascinating for me is, of course, Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, is, is considered as the, the place to be or one of the major innovation destination, And our clients have learned a lot from Silicon Valley. But as a result of the work and the connections we've, we've built, projects have been started in the other directions. For instance, we've helped Light Sail Energy, uh, a very innovative energy storage company in, in Berkeley, very close to Greenbays, build a pilot project in Nantes, uh, the, city, uh, the city I was mentioning, that will be the first uh, project of its kind in the world where energy storage is integrated in the architecture. We've also have, of course, uh, some people from uh, Greenbays, including Pete May, be speakers at, at some of the conferences in in, in, in Nantes and the west of France. But mostly, we've helped some of our California friends realize that. There are pockets of innovations and, and creativity and resources that are not necessarily uh, thought of. And there's a great goodwill and a great uh, reservoir of partnerships that can be tapped.
0: So, if you're successful today in your visit to Greenbiz, what's going to happen as a result?
6: Uh, I think it's the wow factor. Like our clients in this group, not only government officials, but also uh, b- business entrepreneurs here are gonna say, Why wow, I did not, did not realize that sustainability was such a, a driving core of a future success of our organization, but it's not about uh, ecology only. It's not about making a difference uh, and, and, and helping with climate goals, but it's really a way to embed long-term success in my in in my company and that 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 message would be very clear
0: well uh, honored to be trying to wow them i hope we do a successful uh successfully do so um christian Forton thanks so much for coming to green biz
6: my pleasure joel
0: so here's Lindsay Baker, the president of a company, just a neighbor of ours called Building Robotics. Lindsay, you were just sitting with the French delegation. Uh, Would you tell them how'd it go?
2: Yeah, it went well. I, I used my only French uh, introductory line, you know, je parle un peu de français. It, it went over very well. No, they were I don't
0: speak French in French. That's... <laughs>
2: yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, it was a really interesting group. We had a conversation that ranged from talking about entrepreneurship and what it means to be an entrepreneur in in this climate in the Bay Area today, all the way to talking about our technology and how it actually works. And it seemed like a group that was just incredibly engaged on every front, you know, they're trying to figure all of this stuff out. So it was really
6: cool.
0: Yeah, this is a group of, of both public and private sector. There were some public officials as well as some entrepreneurs and from some big companies. Was there a theme to what they seemed to want to hear from you after you told them the building robotics story?
2: Yeah, I think there were a couple of things. First of all, there's a lot of curiosity about how a new technology works. And so we talked a little bit about just what our technology is and how it, you know, how it makes it in the world. But really the bigger point, I think, was about uh, what it takes to start a company in this kind of environment and how it sounds like the, that might be a bit different in Europe. I was telling them there are some entrepreneurs that we know, friends, who have started companies in Europe and they don't always have quite as much of a playground to play in as we do in the Bay Area. And so sort of just talking about what it feels like to you know, start a company when your first clients are Google and Facebook and Salesforce, that kind of thing. They are simultaneously very interested in innovation, but then they also have a lot of bureaucracies that you have to get through. Uh, So that kind of thing.
0: And forgive me for not asking you the elevator pitch so people don't know yet who Building Robotics is. What is the, the pitch?
2: Sure. So real quick, we make a product called Comfy. It's a piece of software and it plugs into buildings to give people a better way of interacting with the temperature in their space, commercial commercial buildings, yep. And it's a little bit like a nest in that way. It's got machine learning built in and it's a very delightful little interface that people can use. So it's really about using people as sensors to allow them to get more comfortable at work.
0: So let's get to the bottom line. Are you going to have more customers in France now?
2: (laughs) I hope so. It was very entertaining. They had a conversation primarily in French about how many buildings in France this would work in. And it sounded like the outcome was probably a lot. So uh, hopefully I'll be getting over there relatively soon to
0: to start that up. Awesome. Lindsay Baker, merci beaucoup. Uh, De rien. So let's turn our attention now to the topic of green marketing, specifically, what does it take very specifically to get consumers to make the good green choice?
1: I have to say I was a little bit surprised when you mentioned that you wanted to feature this today. Um, I know you've written all sorts of articles first, like um, in 1989 era, looking at the rise of the green consumer and then saying, no, green consumerism is dead. Where are we now?
0: Yeah, I know. I feel a little bit like Charlie Brown in the football, ever hopeful, but pretty, you know, still wondering whether this is ever going to happen, but um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I got into this field uh, in the late 1980s, back in the 20th century. Um, when when I wrote the U.S. edition of the British best-selling book called *The Green Consumer Guide*, and uh, and I realized. And I, then I'd had a weekly syndicated column in about 90 newspapers called *The Green Consumer*, and I was talking about the gospel of every time you open your wallet, you cast a vote for or against the environment. And the marketplace isn't a democracy; it doesn't take 51% of people voting to make a difference. Blah blah blah. Not that you've talked about this before. No, <laughs> no just off the cuff. Um, and and then I very quickly realized that. Really, there was no green consumer market in the u s in fact, there may in fact have been a reason why my book was called the Green Consumer <laughs> <It's> <laughs> just It was one guy it wasn't me one that's guy. for sure so uh, uh but but I, I I'm still fascinated by this because there's still and in in, in nineteen eighty nine when I was writing this book, there was the first ever survey of of American consumers by a group that doesn't exist anymore called the Michael Peters group, and they had these draw jaw dropping statistics that said that 90-some percent of of American consumers would gladly make the green choice, and 80-some percent would, or 78 percent, would even pay a premium for the privilege of doing so. And over the, what, 26 or so years, more than a quarter century since then, those data really haven't changed. We still see those same surveys that really haven't changed, and, of course, neither have consumers buying habits they still you know really don't want to buy that they don't really except for a a small segment of I don't know 8 or 10 percent they don't really make a difference but and the reason we're talking about this today is that uh, last week as you know I was at the BSR conference and I ran into uh, my friend Solitaire Townsend, who is the co-founder and chief executive of a British based uh, uh, marketing company called Futera they have uh, actually now offices in uh, In both New York and and here in the Bay Area. And Soli, as we call her, uh, was telling me about they were just launching into the largest ever multi brand, multi audience A B testing of of what works and what doesn't when selling sustainability.
1: What is multi brand A, B,
0: C, D? So A-B testing is something that's really common in, in marketing. Uh, you know, they test different messages, different price points, different uh, colors or sizes or pictures. Uh, we do it here at GreenBiz. We will test different subject lines when we're to see you know, how many opens we get on a, a newsletter or different image sizes to see how many click-throughs we get on the website. Anyway, uh, what what Soli and her team at um, Futera are doing is... Uh, Looking at this uh, from, a, from the perspective of what's needed to sell sustainability and promote sustainable lifestyles, but here's what's interesting, and this is why it kind of got my attention and why I decided to sit down with her and hear more, is that they have, uh, they're working with eBay, AT&T, McDonald's, Johnson & Johnson, and Walmart, and they've put together uh, this, this group of companies alongside Stanford University and BSR. Uh, And a really interesting uh, consortium of organizations to develop a very structured testing and research approach to try and advance green marketing in the real world. And, you know, this is what gives me hope that if we can actually get this down to the same science we use to sell, well, pretty much everything else, there's hope that we can actually start to move this along, uh, move green marketing to more than just a niche
1: So what exactly are they doing in terms of engaging those companies or others to look at these issues?
0: Well, I sat down uh, with Solitaire Townsend at the BSR conference. You'll hear the conference going on in the background, in fact. And uh, I spent a few minutes asking her to talk me through this and what she was trying to do.
7: I'm incredibly excited about this study because after 15 years of working on marketing and communications for sustainability, finally, I'm going to know what actually works and much more importantly, what doesn't. So this is a study that began uh, earlier this year and is going to run until March of 2016. We're working with a series of brands who have looked at all the propositions, all the evidence or the psychology of what should engage consumers in sustainability action. And we're going to put it into market We're going to do A-B testing, testing messages against each other in the marketplace in order to draw conclusions about what sells, what gets people to click, and what gets people to act. We're really hoping to maybe bust a few myths and also to definitively be able to give marketers a guide to what does work for sustainability marketing and what doesn't.
0: So this isn't do consumers care about sustainability it's assuming that there's some aspect of sustainability that they do care about but again what what makes them click
7: absolutely so we have got survey after survey that shows that people care up to 93 percent of consumers worldwide say that they care but let's be honest that doesn't actually always translate into action. In fact, it rarely translates into action. So we're stuck in this value action gap with consumers between what consumers say and what consumers do. There's two conclusions for that. One is consumers are lying. We're all lying when we say we care. The other is that actually we haven't built the right bridge between value and action. The proposition that we're working with, with Futera and BSR, Stanford University, and the brands who are partners, is that actually there are bridges that will cover that value action gap, and we're out to find them.
0: You talked about busting a few myths. Give me an example of a myth or two that you expect to be busting.
7: So, uh, guilt even in some of the best sustainability marketing, there's always this sort of wistful guilt, this negativity, this fear around what might be happening. Basically, the kind of messages that appeal to hardcore environmentalists have a tendency to sneak into sustainability marketing. My gut feeling is that that does not work, and yet it is still a majority message. The guilt offset message is still a majority message, not just around products, but especially around behaviors like recycling or uh, water conservation it's it's heavy on the negative those um, those messages are so we're going to be testing some of those versus some of the positive some of the promiseful and crucially some of the benefit messages and that's what we're going to be going heavy on that our whole proposition is based on the fact that benefit messages functional benefits sustainability saves you money sustainability makes products which are more um uh, uh, quality uh emotional sustainability has a feel good it has a comfort it has an excitement bonus and social sustainability is shareable sustainability helps you bond with a ch- with your children these are the benefits that we're actually going to be comparing to some of the negative messaging and my bet is that the benefits win
0: you talked about uh, the possibility that consumers are lying uh, when they're saying they're, they're concerned and, and, and the implication was that they're not lying, uh, they're just not getting the right messages and the right benefits to, to, to engage, but on the other hand, are some of them lying? <laughs>
7: um, I don't think anybody's lying about caring. When, pe- when you ask people whether they care about climate change, whether they care about pos- poverty, whether they care about clean air and clean water the majority of people say yes our extrapolation from that has been that care equals purchase and we're not asking them about whether they would purchase, how much they would purchase, whether they'll purchase regularly, that's our interpretation and extrapolation I think the reality is that people care very much and yet they also have extremely high expectation of the product services and behaviors we have to hit both we have to give them the sustainability feel good and we have to prove to them that sustainability makes better products Now that's a higher ask that's a much higher ask than slapping a sustainability message onto your product or a love heart or a green leaf our, our hypothesis is however that although it's harder work it is going to work.
0: So what's the big opportunity you hope to unlock here if you're successful?
7: Many people in sustainability don't understand how marketing works. They think the marketers are these creatives who are going to be emotionally passionate about the messages of sustainability and are going to get turned on by faces of polar bears and and children. It's not actually the case. Marketers are data geeks. We are driven by evidence of what actually is going to shift consumer perception and consumer behavior. This is what we are finally going to be able to give. This is the largest and indeed one of the first in-market A-B testing of sustainability messaging. This is not a survey that shows people that care this is evidence-based of whether people buy. This is what I'm hoping is going to be transformational in terms of the sustainability marketing message which is this is what works and this is what di- doesn't and you can trust it because Walmart, at eBay, uh, McDonald's and Johnson & Johnson have tested it with their consumers and those are some brands that marketers respect
0: so when do you expect to have results how can people learn more
7: so some of this uh, is already in market. Uh, McDonald's is uh, here in San Francisco, going to be taking new recycling messaging into their restaurants, A-B testing across, um, uh, across the West Coast. Uh, some others are beginning to start in January. Johnson & Johnson's are going to start in the new year. We should have some very, very early conclusions by springtime, and then we plan to make public the principles and conclusions from our research by June.
0: Great. We'll look forward to hearing more, and uh, we'll see you at GreenBiz 16 in February.
7: So looking forward to that, and I will be bringing perhaps a few sneaky insights from the research by then.
0: Cool. Thanks so much, Ed.
7: Thank you. Pretty fascinating
1: stuff. Be interested to see with what she comes up with, Um, especially we'll stay tuned in Phoenix in February. All right, now let's look at the week ahead. Joining us now is Greenbiz Managing Editor Elsa Wenzel. So, what do we have going on next week?
8: Hi, for next week, Joel is working on the backstory of the 10 year anniversary of Walmart's big sustainability agenda. He'll be looking both inside and outside the company at how Walmart is doing with its three big goals. Joel will also be roaming the halls at Greenbuild along with senior writer Mike Hauer. So, watch for coverage coming from Washington, D.C. And speaking of buildings, Barbara Grady will take a closer look at a new open source database of building materials called Quartz. Quartz promises to change how we build things to make indoor environments less toxic. It comes from Google spin-off Flux, ThinkStep, and the Healthy Building Network. Um, We also had a great talk about Quartz at Verge shortly after its release. Um, We're starting to publish videos from some of our favorite talks at Verge, including one-on-one GreenBiz Studio interviews with Verge speakers. Watch for a couple of new ones each week at greenbiz.com.
1: Yeah, this week we did have a NASA astronaut, so definitely well worth your time to check out the greenbiz.com video page. Um, Also, in the meantime, in addition to what's going on on the editorial side, we've got a couple of free events coming up. On November 17th, we have a webcast on achieving a circular economy, looking at how the private sector is reimagining the future of business. Um, After that, on December 1st, we'll be looking at how businesses are reacting to climate change. So we've done some research um, in partnership with Ingersoll Rand to go out and survey businesses to actually find out what they're doing about climate change. So lots to look forward to. You can find out more about that by going to greenbiz.com and clicking on the events tab at the top of the page.
0: Thanks, guys. Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can find links to organizations, stories, and events that we've mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com 350. Thanks to Soraya Melkonian for her technical magic on the recording and editing dials. And we'd love to hear your comments. Send us your feedback and any compliments or criticisms to 350 at greenbiz.com. Also, this just in, greenbiz 350 is now available on iTunes. Just search for GreenBiz350 or even just GreenBiz and it should come right up. We'd love it if you'd subscribe. And while you're there, please rate the program and maybe even add a short review. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, for the latest news, insight, and resources on sustainable business, visit GreenBiz.com. Subscribe to our daily newsletter called GreenBuzz. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day.